Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everyone to the LSE for this online event. My name is Silvana Tanreiro and I'm a professor of economics at the LSE. This lecture is in memory of Charles Josia Stamp. Uh, who obtained a degree in economics from the LSE in 1916. In 1926, he became the president of the executive of the London, Midland and Scottish Railway. And two years later, he was appointed director of the Bank of England. He also served as a governor and vice chairman for LSE. I'm very, very pleased to be here to welcome Larry Summers to the LSE today. Um, as you probably know, Larry is the Charles W. Elliott University Professor and President Emeritus at Harvard University. Amongst many positions and distinctions, he served as Secretary of the Treasury for President Clinton, as Director of the National Economic Council for President Obama, and as Chief Economist of the World Bank. Welcome, Larry, to the LSE. Um, Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be back at the LSC. My only uh, regret is that I cannot be with you uh, in person. I have many, many happy memories of the semester, six months that I spent at the LSC in the spring of 1987, of the opportunity I had many years ago to give the Robbins lectures and of a variety of other visits uh, to the LSC. And I have learned an enormous amount uh, from uh, faculty friends at uh, the LSC and people like Richard Lair, Charles Goodhart, Irvin King, Nick Stern have been enormous uh, inspirations to me. And I have followed closely uh, the scholarship of uh, a next generation of uh, faculty members at uh, the LSE like yourself uh, to uh, equal benefit. So I'm very, very glad to have uh, the chance to be uh, part of uh, this event to, to discuss what I think are some profoundly important uh, macroeconomic issues. That's great to hear, Larry. Thank you. And uh, so before we start, let me just give a few um, um, inputs to the audience. Um, uh, for those uh, on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSEStam. Uh, the online event uh, will be recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no te technical difficulties. Um, so the plan that we agree with Larry is that the first 30 mi minutes will have a fire chat uh, when um, we he will be responding to my questions. And for the last 30 minutes, there will be a chance for people in the audience to put their own questions to Larry. To submit your questions, uh, you can use the Q&A function, which typically is at the bottom of your screen. Um, questions will be submitted to myself, and I, I will post as many uh, possible questions to Larry. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni, so please let us know if uh, you, you're one of them. Um, so let's uh, get started. Uh, before the pandemic took hold, secular stagnation, a condition when there is little or no economic growth, dominated the policy debate. 
And Larry, you were one of the first to raise the issue and you had put your views on what caused that stagnation. Perhaps you want to remind us about what you think is the main cause for secular stagnation and follow it up with what will happen with secular stagnation after COVID. Are we going back to it or has the pandemic somehow interrupted um, the stagnation? Thanks, uh, thanks very much. Um, I came to a diagnosis a few years after the financial crisis that the right way to conceptualize the economic problem of the industrialized world in the 21st century was in terms of the difficulty of savings absorption, was in terms of the secular tendency with normal fiscal policies for savings to exceed, uh, desired savings to exceed desired investment, resulting in a situation of very low real interest rates, resulting in a innate economic uh, sluggishness, relate difficulty in reaching target levels of inflation, and because of very low discount factors, very high levels of leverage and asset prices, and an enhanced proclivity to financial uh, crisis. That was my assessment in uh, 2013. I think it was borne out very well by subsequent events. Subsequent to that diagnosis, budget deficits were considerably greater than was expected. Interest rates were considerably lower than uh, was expected. Asset prices were considerably higher than was expected, and yet growth was much more sluggish than was anticipated. That is exactly what you would expect if there was difficulty in generating excess demand or adequate demand because of a savings absorption problem. And that, of course, was reminiscent of the situation of the late 1930s. And we can come back to this, but I was able to identify a variety of mechanisms that made it plausible, apart from the overall configuration of asset prices and growth, that there would be a shortage of demand caused by enhanced savings and uh, reduced uh, investment. Did World War II mean that secular stagnation was wrong as an idea? No, it meant that there was an extraordinary set of fiscal actions that caused the propensity, the overall spending propensity to rise relative to the overall savings. Uh, propensity. I think of the events of the last year and a half as qualitatively similar. In the United States, we've had uh, in 2021, we enacted close to 15% of GDP in fiscal stimulus. Relative to 
the gap, uh, the GDP gap, or the excess unemployment at the beginning of the year, the stimulus that we've enacted is five to 10 times, depending on how you do the calculation, as large as the fiscal stimulus enacted after the financial crisis. I'm certainly one who believes that the stimulus, as I believed at the time, that the stimulus should have been larger after the financial crisis. But I don't think there's a strong case that it should have been five to 10 times larger. So currently, the driving event is the extraordinary scale of the fiscal stimulus, along with extraordinary monetary policy that has been put in place. But if you look at markets, what markets are seeming to price is a return to secular stagnation, or another way to put it, is a globalization of Japanization. The US 30-year tip reached negative 57 basis points last uh, yesterday. That figure is more negative than ever before. It is not as negative as corresponding uh, rates in Britain and probably not as negative as corresponding rates would be in Germany or Japan if they were uh, readily observable. It's a very complex question, but there are probably more liquidity and term premia in that number than, in the, than uh, that are on net positive. That suggests that the judgment of markets is that real rates for the next generation are going to be negative, even in the presence of extraordinarily high, by historical standards, debt to GDP ratios, and prospectively for some significant number of years, relatively high fiscal deficits. And so that reflects the possibility that we at least have to very carefully consider that this savings absorption problem is going to be with us uh, for quite some time, even if it is not the immediate issue um, of uh, the moment. Thank you very much, um, Larry. And so what's, what can we do to escape secular stagnation? Um, for many years, you, you argue that fiscal policy uh, would get us out of the stagnation, but uh, more recently, and, and now you're, you're being um, a bit more critical of, of uh, I think, about uh, the fiscal stimulus. Uh, what should fiscal policy focus on and what is the role of monetary policy there? I think, the, I think there is a very important um, set of issues that in old-fashioned parlance have to do with uh, the slope of the IS curve. I think that in understanding the very low real interest rate currently and prospectively, there is an interpretation which emphasizes, as I just did, the savings investment gap. And there's an alternative interpretation 
that estimate that emphasizes the lack of responsiveness of aggregate demand to the level of the real interest rate, and therefore suggests that even a limited gap will lead to very substantial declines in real interest rates. I am very skeptical of the efficacy and desirability of super low interest rates. I am not convinced that there's much investment that will take place at a nominal interest rate of 100 basis points that will not take place at a nominal interest rate of 150 basis points. I am not convinced that if there was such investment, it would be terribly efficient or productive investment. And I worry that extremely low interest rates set the stage for leveraging, for the perpetuation of zombie enterprises, and for the perpetuation of bubbles. I think we're seeing a fair amount of that uh, right now. Look at the uh, level of trading in call options. Look at what's happening in a variety of exotic markets like uh, non-fungible uh, tokens. Look at uh, the uh, propensity to uh, buy uh, meme stocks. Uh, seems to me we're seeing a lot of evidence of uh, it suggests risks of speculative fraud. So I do not subscribe to the view that negative rates are highly efficacious or uh, desirable. I would not be in favor of uh, the various ingenious proposals to uh, basically stop cash of the traditional kind so as to facilitate being able to get negative rates. I don't think what is fundamental is the zero lower bound. I think what is fundamental is that extremely low negative real interest rates are, pro are problematic. So I think the appropriate instruments have more to do with, uh, again, to use traditional parlance, uh, shifting uh, the IS curve by operating to change uh, savings and investment. The most obvious set of instruments have to do with uh, changing fiscal policy in the sense of the cyclically adjusted uh, budget deficit. I think that if one subscribes to my views um, and my concerns, on an interim basis, we need to rethink traditional views of fiscal sustainability. At the time the Maastricht criteria were formulated, the nominal interest rate in Germany was 9%. And the real interest rate in Germany was between four and 5%. You think about how a company would approach judging its debt. You think about how any of us would approach assessing how much debt relative to our income we could take on to buy a house. The level of the interest rate and the importance and desirability of the investment would be central variables. And we surely would take on more debt um, if we desperately needed a larger house, if 
the nominal interest rate were close to zero, and if the real interest rate were negative, then we would in a world of nine and five. And I think that needs to inform judgments about the sustainability of fiscal policy. I think the second point that has received less attention, but I think is very important, is that there are a variety of ways in which fiscal policy that does not change the budget deficit as calculated by the IMF or the OECD or national authorities can be on net stimulative. Redistribution from those with a more, more affluence and a lower marginal propensity to consume to those with um, lower affluence and a higher marginal propensity to consume. A strengthening of old age insurance that through strengthening of pay-as-you-go social security uh, programs operates to replace private savings with public uh, promises. And in a world where growth rates are likely to exceed real interest rates for the foreseeable future, uh, have every potential to improve uh, welfare. And strengthening of social insurance that reduces the need for precautionary savings operates in the same direction um, as uh, well. So I think there is much uh, that uh, can be done. Secular stagnation, as I interpret it, uh, in a demand uh, sense, and frankly, as Hansen uh, interpreted it, is not the dismal pessimistic vision that it sounds like. Excess saving, in many ways, is an opportunity for society rather than a curse, it offers the opportunity to promote spending, to enhance consumption without a uh, sacrifice. And so I don't think of this as an insoluble uh, problem, but I do think it a diagnosis that has to be offered and accepted. I'm not sure that it is the right diagnosis. I would be cautious about locking in very long-term policies in the confident expectation that it is the right diagnosis. But I think that we do need to rethink a whole variety of ideas um, that glorify uh, thrift in favor of uh, the diagnosis that suggests that the larger and more structural macroeconomic problem of the moment, um, not of the immediate moment right now, but of the post-COVID uh, moment is some form of excess saving. So, I mean, as, as you said, 
stagnation, uh, some of the causes behind it might, might not be uh, bad in, in themselves. And one reason why we have excess savings is that we are living longer lives, for example, and, uh, and that has led to an increase um, in, in the stock of assets uh, um, and, and desired savings. Uh, however, others have pointed to uh, the growth in inequality in, um, in advanced economies as, as one of the reasons why we ended up in, in secular stagnation with the redistribution of assets and incomes towards um, uh, individuals with lower propensity to consume. So what's your take on, on that? And I'm concretely talking about Atif Amian's uh, research here. I, I think that um, it is the tendency to look for monocausal explanations and the world is, real, is rarely monocausal. My own views would put uh, more emphasis on an investment dearth associated with demastication of the economy. Trends like the fact that law firms used to need 1,200 square feet per, per lawyer, and now they only need 600 feet per lawyer. Trends like the move to e-commerce. So I would put more emphasis on the investment side than on the uh, saving side. I would put some considerable emphasis on demographic variables and increases in uncertainty, but I do suspect that increased inequality is one of the causes. I think that that is only one of the reasons why more effective mo means of promoting equality seem to me to be desirable. It seems to me that those who put dominant emphasis on inequality need to ponder the fact that in many ways, secular stagnation um, in the form of low interest rates, sluggish growth, excess capacity is most profound in Japan and in continental Europe, where the increases in inequality are least salient. And so I would recognize the importance of uh, that, but it would not be my instinct to dominantly ascribe uh, secular stagnation uh, to uh, the increases in, in uh, inequality. Mm. Now, as, as you set out, you don't expect secular stagnation to um, go away and, and you think interest rates, uh, real interest rates will remain low um, uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, now, given, given uh, inflation targets around 2%, that translates naturally into um, uh, nominal rates that are also very low. And um, given uh, that we are exposed to shocks, that means that monetary policy will be perhaps more frequently exposed to that um, zero lower bound or effective lower bound, wherever you place it uh, more, more, more often. Um, so what's, how do you think the, how do you see the role of monetary policy in that setting? I think we're past peak central banking. I think peak central banking has come and gone because I think uh, that uh, we are likely to be in a world where the feasible range in which interest rates can be varied is 
substantially less than it used to be. And we're likely to be in a world where the neutral rate is much lower than it used to be. And we're in a world where, because the share of durable goods in the economy has been substantially reduced, because inventory holding has been substantially attenuated, the impact of interest rates on spending is uh, likely uh, to uh, be uh, reduced. And I think that the consensus five years from now will ascribe less efficacy to QE and to forward guidance than it currently does. So my prediction would be that fiscal policy and its various manifestations will be a more important stabilization policy instrument relative to uh, monetary policy uh, than is uh, currently uh, the than is uh, currently the uh, the case. I think that it is hard to believe that. Uh, if you think carefully about delta, longer term interest rates, delta QE, or delta longer term interest rates, delta forward guidance, times delta demand, delta interest rates, starting with, um, exceptionally low levels of interest, it is, I think, hard to believe that fiscal policy is going to, that monetary policy is going to be an enormously powerful uh, stabilization uh, policy instrument uh, going, uh, going forward, particularly in what is probably a world that is not moving aggressively towards more globalization right now, but that is more globalized than it has been historically. And so with more common elements in business cycles, meaning that the scope for monetary policy to work through the exchange rate channel is uh, diminished. And do you think that central bank digital currencies might, might be a way out of the scenario you're describing? No. Um, no, I think first, even if you have a central bank digital currency, it is very hard to get rid of traditional currency. And as long as you have traditional uh, currency, you have the possibility of storage and therefore you have a constraint on how low the negative and how negative the rate uh, can be. Second, I don't, as I tried to explain a little earlier, I am quite skeptical that there will be a lot of spending, and particularly a lot of spending of a desirable sort at a negative 2% real interest rate, that there will not be at a negative 1% real interest rate. So I think there's a case both ways on uh, central bank digital uh, currencies. But I think it's a case that has to do with uh, the kinds of issues that are involved in thinking about the post office versus Federal Express and what the right role of the public sector is in utility technologies that knit the economy together.
not a fundamentally macroeconomic uh, case. Thank you, Larry. Let me start by um, reading out some questions from the audience. Um, so we have a question from Michael Joffe, who's an LSE al alumnus. Uh, to what extent, he asks, is the surplus of savings really a question of this distribution or inequality? That is, massive wealth of uh, mass massive wealth of certain corporations and the top stratum of individuals. Most people and firms would be surprised to be told they have too much wealth. Uh, as I indicated, I think that the issues are more investment dearth than savings shortfall, than savings excess. And I think that there are multiple causes of high savings. I do think that if uh, the income distribution in the United States and the United Kingdom were as it was a generation ago, that uh, the level of saving would be lower, the level of demand would be higher, and the neutral interest rate would be higher. But I resist the idea that that is of dominant importance because of the uh, parallel I mentioned a few moments ago with uh, Japan and continental Europe, where inequality is a lesser issue and secular stagnation is a more profound issue. And I have a question from Tomasz Vidalek. He asks, what is your view on the very large investment required to transition to a net zero economy on the one hand, and the dropping out of older workers from the labor force after the pandemic? Could these two factors mitigate or reverse secular stagnation through a much higher investment? I'm, uh, I'm glad that uh, that question uh, was, uh, was, was asked. Um, I think early retire, earlier retirement is very much a two-edged sword to the extent that there comes to be an expectation that people will retire earlier and uh, that life will, and that retired life will be longer. That will operate to raise levels of saving and raise levels of desired wealth accumulation and so potentially exacerbate uh, secular stagnation. You know, when I studied uh, the life cycle hypothesis when I was a student, the example with which I was presented with was the example that Franco Modigliani had originally calculated that involved a person who worked for 40 years and then saved for 10 years. And with a zero interest rate, it was necessary to have a 20% savings, uh, savings rate, as you can see. Today, it's not implausible for many people coming out of universities that they'll begin their careers in the mid-20s, that they'll leave their careers in their early 60s. So they will have a working life of perhaps 35 uh years or a little longer, and then they will have a retired life of 30 years or so. If uh, with given modern medical technology, 
that points to a vastly higher savings rate. So I think retirement is probably something that operates in the direction of more uh, secular stagnation. I do think that there is a possibility that needs to be very carefully considered that the proper use of the excess savings that I described will very much be in the investments that are necessary to create a sustainable economy, in uh, the production of a dominantly, but not only, in the production of electricity in sustainable ways, renewable ways, and the electrification of energy uses that are currently not electrified. How much that will happen smoothly in the marketplace and what inducements will be necessary to bring that about and cause that investment transformation to take place, I think in many ways is the great macroeconomic challenge of uh, our time. And I think economists are just beginning to dovetail the excess saving, savings absorption problem, conceptualization of our macroeconomic challenges with uh, the uh, climate change uh, necessity. I think the point is a very, very is a very, very important one. I know there are a lot of students uh, listening. I think it's one that would be very, very valuable for there to be more research on. I have a question from Robert Farago. Um, he says, uh, you say, Larry, that negative interest rates are problematic, but are they a necessary um, uh, factor in an environment of extremely high levels of government debt? Will they help? Uh, bring debt to GDP down? I, I don't, I certainly don't think that there's any reason at all why, any necessary reason why negative nominal interest rates are uh, necessary uh, given current levels of uh, debt. I'm more agnostic about uh, negative uh, real uh levels of uh interest jason Furman and i have argued um that in thinking about appropriate levels of debt much more attention should be paid than has traditionally been paid to uh levels current and prospective of uh real debt service that is real, that is interest payments on debt, less the inflation-induced erosion of uh, debt. And we can operate with debt service levels that are really very low by historical standards without having uh, negative uh, rates. I think we have to make a judgment, and I think that part of the paradigm shift that I'm trying to bring about by emphasizing secular stagnation and the centrality of savings absorption 
as the macroeconomic problem is this. Should we think of the level of interest rates as a consequence of the level of government indebtedness, that fiscal dominance forces low interest rates? Or should we think of the level of deficits as an endogenous response to the levels of private saving and private investment that also lead to very low real interest rates. And your question, rather traditionally, Robert, had the first uh, premise. And the thesis behind what I have said is that the reason debt levels rose in the decade before COVID was not an epidemic of profligacy, but was a reality of the need to maintain aggregate demand in a world where interest rates were already very, already at the basement. So I have a question from Amit Kara, LSE alumnus. Um, he would like to hear your views on Schmelzing's work on long-term interest rates. Um, the result there is that interest rates have been on a secular downward, downward trend since the 1300s. Are we fighting a losing battle with policy interventions? And um, perhaps I can, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 think his, I think his work is extremely interesting as an approach to thinking about long-term uh, economic uh, history. Um, I am, I find it fascinating. On the other hand, I'm not sure that there's very much we can learn about uh, the current economy from thinking about uh, interest rates in feudal times when the vast majority of the kinds of capital in which we invest today had not been uh, invented, in which the social construct of retirement did not uh, exist, and in which financial institutions as we now know them uh, did not, uh, uh, did not uh, exist. So I don't know that it would be right. I mean, it was only uh, 35 years ago during the 1980s when people were writing papers about the phenomenon of high real interest rates. And so I think it's a uh, mistake to think that anything is forever in economics. Uh, one of the many mistakes I have made of uh, judgment as I think back is that if you had asked me in the early 90s, what was the prospect that the United States would spend uh, profound, uh, protracted periods of time in some version of the liquidity trap with um, interest rates at zero, I would have regarded that as extraordinarily unlikely. And I think that what I learned uh, from, <laughs> from that mistake is that 
I sh <coughs> that I shouldn't assume that there that a return to medium high rates of inflation is inconceivable, and that I also should maintain a posture of some agnosticism about where things will go over uh, the very over uh, you know a generation uh, from uh, from uh, from now. I think in general in economics we are better off understanding that we have two challenges that physicists do not have. One is that their world doesn't change and our world does. Malthus's theory was actually a pretty good theory of the dynamics of population and living standards for the several centuries before he propounded it. It's just that the technology associated with the industrial revolution changed uh, everything. And the other is uh, what one might call the Heisenberg aspect, that our theories and the policies that followed from them change the underlying economic reality. And the fact that we now understand about fiscal policy, um, I think has material impacts for thinking about the evolution of interest rates going forward. So I've got great admi admiration for his work, but I don't regard it as um, suggesting a predestination of the future. Yael Hadas from Israel asks, do you think that there is a better way to deal with the amplified inequality caused by COVID-19? Look, I think the, the most important three things to say about COVID-19 are that we are under-investing in all the things that are responsive uh, to it. We should have produced more vaccines more quickly. We should have disseminated the vaccines we had produced more quickly. We are currently substantially under-investing in infrastructure for getting jabs in arms around uh, the world. We are engaged in far too little testing around the world so as to be able to uh, track um, the evolution of the virus and so as to be able to minimize contagion where the virus uh, does uh, recur. And we have underinvested in uh, the dissemination of potential treatments. And most egregiously, we are underinvesting in the necessary apparatus for the world doing better the next time a pandemic comes, which in my judgment, using COVID as a broad range for what constitutes a pandemic probably has a 50% chance of happening within the next uh, decade. So yes, it would be a good idea in a whole set of ways to strengthen uh, social safety nets. Yes, the international financial institutions disbursements 
to uh, poor countries have been insufficient. But I think the far and away most important thing we should be doing about COVID is doing more about uh, COVID along the dimensions that I just sketched. Peter Humphreys, an LSE student, asks, house price inflation is having a crushing impact on younger generations. And this is something that can be seen in many economies. Is there a way that the problem of housing inflation can be unwound and returned to affordable levels without risking global financial stability, instability? Look, I think it's, I think that is a, manifestation of a broader phenomenon. Um, indulge me in an, indulge me in a slightly more academic discussion for just a moment. Imagine a world in which assets are durable and in which agents live for many periods. And imagine a substantial decline in discount factors. The wealth of the elderly will rise very substantially because the discount that the discount value of the cash flows their assets will generate will rise sharply. The return the savers are able to earn on their assets will diminish, which will mean that even if their annual annual salaries are going to be the same, the sustainable level of lifetime consumption for the young will go down. That is essentially what is happening um, when house prices rise because of declines in uh, discount factors. So the burden of that argument would be that the solution for uh, house price uh, inflation um, of the kind you're describing is, a, is addressing secular stagnation by increasing investment or reducing savings so that the economy reaches full employment with a higher level of the interest rate and therefore lower multiples associated with assets. That's an analysis that if you think it through or you make a model, you'll realize is contingent on a view that there's substantial inelasticity of supply. But I think uh, I'm guessing you're thinking about housing in the London area or thinking about London, thinking about uh, housing in one of the more densely populated uh, areas of the United Kingdom. And if that's true, there is a basic inelasticity uh, in uh, supply. I'm also very sympathetic to the standard kind of economist views that uh, a range of restrictions on building, on the heights to which buildings can be built um, and uh, the like, which operate to reduce supply are factors that also contribute to housing inflation in the face of rising demand. If uh, 
San Francisco could be populated in the way that New York City is, the level of housing prices would be far, far more uh, affordable uh, than they are. Thank you, Larry. Sueta Saxena wants to hear your views about um, how secular stagnation will affect emerging economies, perhaps because they, they've had more different trends to some extent than advanced economies. And, and she wants to hear how you see um, those affecting them. It's a, um, it's a very good question. You know, in some ways, one way of thinking about uh, late Victorian England um, or early Edwardian England, probably more late Victorian England, is that there was a very high level of saving and there was a limited investment opportunity in England. And that was one way of saying it would be that it was the motivation for empire. Another way of saying it would be that it led to vast outbound British investment in, for example, the Buenos Aires uh, subway. And whatever one thought about uh, the politics of empire, it led to substantial capital formation in the emerging markets of that moment, which certainly included the, uh, at an earlier point, the British capital that financed uh, the US Intercontinental Railroad. And so potentially there is a substantial opportunity in this excess of savings for an enhancement of investment uh, in emerging markets. And in general, emerging markets are very sensitive to the level of global real interest rates. The question is really about the quality of institutions in emerging markets and what they say about uh, the actual attractiveness of investment in economies that is measured by capital to people ratios are surely capital short. I think the concern in this moment would be that if one looked at many emerging markets, um, Turkey, Brazil, China, um, it appears that the tendency is somewhat more to capital flight than it is to a major desire for capital to flow uh, in. So I think that what happens um, is very much in the hands of the kind of policy frameworks and the kind of stable institutions that emerging markets are or are not able to create. So if, if you were to give advice to emerging economies, what, what, would, be, uh, what would you say? Uh, given that institutions in some sense is something that uh, is built over years and centuries. Um. I think I would probably, uh, I, mean, I think, you know, advice, because it's a uh, cliche is not necessarily wrong. Uh, 
I would put a lot of emphasis on uh, rule of law, enforcement of contract, respect for property rights, facilitation of uh, the enforcement of uh, contracts um, and uh, the like. I would in general urge relatively permissive attitudes towards foreign direct uh, investment, certainly in any context where I thought there was likely to be any substantial dissemination of knowledge, skill, and capacity uh, from uh, that uh, foreign uh, direct uh, investment. I would argue for the uh, for a set of government uh, policies that focused on the most important functions of government, the provision of basic uh, infrastructure, the uh, provision of uh, human capital to uh, the work uh, to the workforce. Uh, and uh, the like. These are not dazzlingly original uh, policy prescriptions, but I do think it's important to recognize that if the broad view presented here is right, that there's an incipient excess of saving in the industrial world, it does create a potentially large opportunity for emerging markets but not if those emerging markets are not even able to maintain policy frameworks that lead their own citizens to want to invest at home. Frank Curtis, UCL and LBS alumnos ask, would increased taxation, particularly capital taxes, tackle the problem with excess savings? If so, would it be politically feasible in democratic countries with large numbers of elderly and relatively wealthy voters? I think you have to be careful because capital, you, you raised the question of whether capital taxation would reduce savings. There's also the question of whether capital taxation would inhibit investment. And it depends on uh, a variety of details about how the capital uh, tax regime uh, is uh, implemented. I think the world's done something hugely important in the last year on taxation by uh, agreeing on a global minimum tax, tax treaty approach. And I think it's certainly very welcome that uh, we have shifted from a philosophy of trying to win races to zero in uh, global taxation, winning races to the bottom, to an alternative philosophy of cooperating to make sure that mobile capital uh, pays its fair share. And I think that is going to operate in very positive ways, whether it will operate, how much it will operate to reduce secular stagnation, I'm not altogether sure. But I think it's very much a uh, useful step uh, in uh, the right uh, direction. 
Larry, in the last couple of minutes that we have left, um, can you tell us what you, how you view Glasgow and are you optimistic about the outcomes from COP26? Let me say something about Glasgow and then if you'll indulge me, let me make a kind of broader final comment about uh, the things that I have, uh, that I have talked about. I think that um, Glasgow is unlikely to be in a history book a hundred years from now. There are periodic global conferences that are. Versailles is in history books, mostly negatively. Bretton Woods is in history books, mostly uh, positively. Vienna is in history books, mostly uh, positively, but the vast, vast, vast majority of international conclaves are lost to history, except to extreme specialists. And I think that will be uh, Glasgow's uh, fate. I think the optimistic view is um, that edifices get built brick by brick, and that there was a methane agreement, there were a variety of pledges, there was a kind of global corporate consciousness raising, and that all of that is operating in the right direction, and a combination of Fear doing the work of reason, technology uh, marching on, and generations passing will lead us towards uh, solutions. I think a negative view would be that somebody should write a book about how the world uh, is dealing with um, of dealing with both climate change and uh, pandemics, dealing with global public goods, um, calling it the economic consequences of the dinner. That, uh, the, that fundamentally we have failed to take uh, fundamental steps. I have a modestly, uh, I, I am, see the force of both of those views. And I think with respect to pandemics, I would say we're closer to the economic consequences of the dither. And with respect to uh, climate, uh, it's a very slow process, but I think we laid, I think we laid uh, some bricks. Thank you very much, Larry, uh, on behalf of the LSE and everybody in the audience today for sharing your views so candidly with all of us. Um, we hope to have you and everyone in the audience um, soon back at the LSE. Um, Thank you. We'll very, good to, very good to be with you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.